Informant podcast should not be interpreted as legal advice and are intended for general information purposes only. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the first episode in Burr and Foreman's podcast series devoted to labor and employment issues. We're glad you decided to listen, and we hope that we can give you some useful information and maybe some practical ideas to consider as you navigate the challenges that 2020 has created for us all. My name is Brant Smithini, and I'm a partner in Burr and Foreman's Birmingham office. And I'm joined today by my partner, Jim Gillum, from the firm's Greenville, South Carolina office. Say hello, Jim. Hey, Brantz. How are you? I'm great. Um, Let's tell everybody uh, a little bit about our firm. For those of us that may not know much about Burr and Foreman, we're a 100-year-old full-service law firm that has one of the largest and most experienced labor and employment teams anywhere in the Southeast. Even though Jim and I are based in South Carolina and Alabama, respectively, we each have national practices that serve clients all over our southeastern footprint and across the country. And the same is true for most of the members of our labor and employment team. They operate out of offices within this southeastern region, but work largely throughout the United States on all of the matters that touch on labor and employment issues. This new podcast series that we've created and that Jim and I are the first to test out and and offer ideas and and solutions for our clients is really the logical evolution of numerous webinars and articles that our L&E team has created over the past few months. Some of you who are listening today may have participated in those webinars, may have read those articles, and and we hope that what we do today goes beyond that content. We know that that was really strong technical legal information, but in a lot of instances, this format didn't really give the opportunity to talk candidly to our clients about some of the challenges that they're actually facing, you know, hoping to offer solutions to real-world problems. So in these conversations, like the one Jim and I are about to have, we're hoping to examine the incredibly challenging environment that this pandemic has created for HR professionals and business leaders, you know, anyone in the workplace who truly cares about their workforce and and really who cares about culture and morale and people building. You know, these are things that sometimes we take for granted when we are in ordinary times and we're just enforcing policies and procedures and statutes. But here, you know, we want to talk about, we want to talk about culture. We want to talk about how to treat people and why it really matters, why it's important. So what we're hoping is that we can take the educational information that, that is like what we have created over the past few months for our clients and, and for the business community and help leaders understand how to use that information as kind of a foundation for the more complex questions. Like, for example, what am I supposed to do about a really good employee who just can't come to work because school is closed? How do I tell operations managers that they're gonna have to sacrifice efficiency for safety? Or do my policies even permit me to make certain kinds of discretionary decisions in an environment where truly one size just no longer can fit all? And so Jim and I were talking the other day about a presentation that we had given a few months ago, back in the days when you could still get together in person and and share ideas and 
in that conversation, we began to discuss some of the unexpected, unpredictable costs that are associated with companies that have these, these, this rigid, inflexible culture. And Jim, when we were making that presentation, one of the things you talked about was how a company could be a leader in product innovation. It could be you know, creative in its industry and the way that it delivers products to the community. But it also could be a company at the same time that lacks vision or creativity in how it manages its personnel and its culture. You mentioned, and I agree, those decisions can come at a real hard cost. What do you think about that? Well, Brad, first of all, I, I'm surprised to know that you were listening to me while I was talking. So I'm, I'm happy to hear that you were. Um, and, and I think the way that this kind of evolved is I was telling a story to a group that we were presenting to. You know, when we defend lawsuits, whether we're lawyers or companies, we really don't know, you know, what precipitates the lawsuit, right? I mean, I think it's pretty natural to think, well, we fire somebody and they go to a lawyer and they want to complain about the firing. And then there's a lawsuit that's brought where the employee says, you know, my termination was illegal because it was based on a protected characteristic or the employee engaged in a protected activity. I think that's the way we typically think about lawsuits. And, you know, there are a lot of lawsuits that probably happen that way. But some don't. And uh, what I was doing is I was telling a story about a way this particular lawsuit evolved. It was actually a lawsuit that became a class action. And, and I was able to get some insight over the course of litigation from working with the plaintiff's attorney as to how this particular lawsuit started. And this was a situation where there was an employee who was terminated and he was, inter he was terminated around the holidays. And, you know, typically I hate to recommend that anybody is terminated around the holidays. It's just not a good look. But sometimes people do stuff where, you, you know, they kind of force your hand. But in this particular instance, this employee was terminated around the holidays and he went to go see a lawyer about it. And of course, you know, he went to go see the lawyer about his termination because people, you know, the way lay people think, they think if they're fired, that's wrong. And they think, you know, they think if something's wrong, it's also illegal. So he went to go see the lawyer about his termination and he talked to the lawyer about his termination, talked about how long he'd worked for the company, about how he believed he'd done a good job working for the company, and about how he was fired, you know, close to the holidays. And gosh, you know, isn't that just wrong? And of course, if it's wrong, it's got to be illegal. Well, you know, the lawyer told him, of course, that it wasn't, right? That, you know, things being wrong in someone's perception is not the same as it being illegal. But, you know, something happened in that moment. You know, the lawyer cared. The lawyer cared about the employee, because he also felt like, well, you know, it's just not right that somebody's fired during the holidays. So the lawyer started quizzing him, right? He started talking to him about how he was paid. He started asking the employee, he said, well, you know, uh, were you paid a salary or were you paid by the hour? He says, you know, I was, I was paid a salary. And he started talking to the employee about what the employee's job duties were. Once the lawyer got those responses from the client, uh, the lawyer questioned whether or not the employee was classified correctly. He thought that the employee should have been classified hourly and should have been paid overtime. And come to find out, it wasn't just that employee who had that particular job duty. There were others. So what was born was a class action lawsuit based on misclassification. And that's what the company and I had to defend. And it's something that started off where, you know, you could all kind of trace it back to culture. All trace it back to a termination that happened around the holidays. So sometimes, you know, it happens that fast. It, you know, it does. And I know that you believe that that's an example of a circumstance that is just going to become even more pronounced and common 
in the pandemic times that we're living in, where employers have gotten to a place where a lot of the decisions that, that we're going to be making in the next few months may not necessarily be illegal. We still have a lot of laws that are under consideration and may, and may change the way we approach some of these issues with our employees. But even if it's not technically illegal right now, some issues are going to arise as a result of the pandemic that are going to create a lot of long-term problems for our clients. And, you know, that's what we wanted to talk about. And, you know, as you and I were, were discussing some of the issues that we see and, and sharing solutions that we've offered to our clients, I know you've got a really high level of concern about some of these hidden issues, these covert issues that could, we may make a short-term decision that's legal in response to the FFCRA or some other you know, recent law that's been passed, but maybe wasn't the smartest decision in the world because of the long-term implications like the one that you just described. So you know, what keeps you up at night? What, what do you worry about when you think about decisions that your clients may make that could be you know, technically correct, but could have negative long-term consequences. The question to what keeps me up at night is always two four-year-old twins and, and an aging beagle. But I mean, among those, there are other things as well. The thing that I'm especially concerned about with coronavirus is just that companies, not just companies, I mean, I feel like lawyers too. I mean, we're reactive by nature to problems, right? I mean, we wait for a problem to manifest itself before we start to try to fix it. And I think normally that's probably a pretty good approach to things. But with coronavirus, I don't know that it is because there are a lot of things that even though they may not be a problem today, I think it's pretty reasonable to see that they're going to be a problem you know, tomorrow or next week or next month. And, you know, the biggest problem I see in that area are and, you know, it's on it's on the horizon. I think it's on everybody's mind and maybe we're just trying not to think about it. And I think, too, Brant's with coronavirus, it brings so many new challenges. I mean, there's so many new challenges that we have to deal with on a daily basis that we become more just like reactive. Right. So we're on the defensive completely all the time. And I think with this coronavirus problem, especially as it pertains to schools, because most companies have employees who are going to be um, negatively impacted if schools are not open like normal, I guess is the best way to say it for right now. So, you know, I think that's something that we need to think about. Yeah. So schools are the hottest topic I'm getting calls and questions about. And, you know, we get the same emails every day. And, and you saw this morning that our managing partner sent an email around to our law firm about how Burr Informant is going to address child care challenges and re remote work and, and all of the issues associated with it. So everybody is facing these kind of challenges. And, you know, that's going to be especially true because of how unpredictable it is, right? So we can anticipate that there are going to be issues that result from in-person school and, you know, whether that continues, whether it stops and starts. And, and also with the virtual learning what are employers able to do and what is smart to do with respect to some of these school decisions and the childcare challenges that they're going to present? I mean, have you, have you had any comments, questions, thoughts that you've had with clients about some of these kinds of questions that you think are important? Yeah, I actually did a presentation yesterday with some HR professionals and, you know, we talked about this issue for a long time and, you know, a lot of times it's been framed as kind of all or nothing, right? Like, what are we going to do if schools don't open? I don't know that that's necessarily what we're going to be dealing with. I think we're going to be dealing with some type of hybrid setting. In a lot of places, um, I don't know about, you know, every single place where everybody may be listening to us. But in a lot of places, what's already planned is for there to be some sort of 
hybrid plan in place for the school week. So there's going to be, you know, for instance, like three days of physical school and two days of online school. And even if you're at a place where right now the plan is to, hey, we're just going to, we're going to have school just like normal. We're going to have school five days a week, physical school. You know, I would say to you that, you know, maybe they won't. Uh, I know, give you a, a fast fact about Brant Matheny, former college baseball player at UAB. And I know uh, baseball just started up and I know it's been in the news a lot. I mean, you know, I think it's been going for two weeks. We can't get through two weeks of the baseball season without coronavirus you know, potentially putting the whole season in doubt. So I think it's pretty unlikely, even if where you are, if the plan is to go back to physical school, I think you have to account for the possibility that, you know, maybe that's not going to happen. So what do we do? So what does an employer do when their employees are bouncing around from, you know, the ability to work to an inability to work? And I mean, you know, these are good employees, Jim. These are people we want to keep. We're not mad at these folks. We just know that these challenges are real, but we also got a business to run. What are some options that are out there? What guidance have we gotten from the Department of Labor, from courts about how to deal with these issues? The best place to start is to start with what the legal requirements are in this particular setting. And in this particular situation, if, you know, the first question we have to ask ourselves is, is the Emergency Family Medical Leave Act implicated? Of course, that act is going to provide paid leave to employees to the extent that they're, and this is important, okay, unable to work or telework. And I think that's something we're going to talk about, Brands, when we talk about work from home policy. So unable to work or telework because their child's school or daycare facility is closed due to COVID-19. You know, the situation that we're talking about, let's talk about the hybrid model, for instance. Let's say that we're that, that our company is in a place where the plan is for school to take place, you know, three days a week physically, just like normal, and two days online. Well, what about those two days online, right? I mean, I think the first question we got to ask ourselves is, well, is the Emergency Family Medical Leave Act implicated by virtue of those online school days? I mean, clearly it's not when school is taking place just like normal because school's open. I guess the question really is, is a school closed for purposes of the Emergency Family Medical Leave Act if it is online only? And Brant, timely enough, the Department of Labor has answered this question for us today, kind of. You know how that goes. What the Department of Labor has said is they said, if the children's schools are physically closed for normal in-person instruction but are operating online remotely, then employees are going to be eligible for Emergency Family Medical Leave Act, if certain things happen. I mean, uh, number one, you know, again, like I said, sort of at the get-go, the parent employee's got to be unable to, to work or telework. But I think this is kind of interesting. No other suitable person is available to care for the child, such as a co-parent, co-guardian, or other usual and available child care provider. Boy, that's going to be a lot of fun to deal with. But I mean, I think the short answer is, I mean, what we do know is if we are dealing with this hybrid model, okay? If we're dealing with a situation where a kid's going to school three days a week, but going to have online school for the other two days a week, then that employee could be eligible for emergency family medical leave act for those other two days. Yeah. And so you're aware that is in my role, I have a lot of pull. So I called up the secretary of labor this morning and said, hey, Jim and I are recording a podcast. Could you, uh, could you give us some guidance on this topic so that we can give our clients some hard answers? So I'm glad that we got that this morning before we recorded this podcast. And it's helpful. It's helpful. It's useful to know what um, the Department of Labor thinks about that particular issue. And, and, you know, it helps us at least understand what the legal requirements are. But like you and I have discussed in the past, 
it helps to an extent, but it doesn't really solve the problem because while we now know what our legal obligations are and, and how to address a situation like that, folks are going to run out of leave. There are going to be some clients and, and businesses that are listening to this podcast aren't even subject to the FFCRA and its emergency family medical leave provisions, and, and they're going to face the same issues. So we've got to figure out a solution to that. And for me, and I think you agree with me, one of the opportunities that exist is to treat it a little bit like the interactive process under the ADA and to think of this as an opportunity just to communicate, to ask questions, to find out what other solutions might exist for these employees, rather than to simply say, policy says X, law says Y, that means Z, you're terminated. We don't want that outcome in a lot of situations. And so, you know, communication, it seems to me, is the way to address it. And Jim, I mean, what are your thoughts about the best way to talk to folks about these kinds of problems that they're facing and, and how to help solve them? You know, Brad, I, I think that where you're going with this is a smart approach. I mean, you know, one of the analogies that I've always drawn to this is to, to draw the analogy. It's not this particular situation, but to draw the analogy between what we would do in this situation and an ADA situation, where we engage in that interactive process with the employee. I love words or phrases like interactive process because it seems so technical. I mean, it really just means talking to people, right? I mean, that's all it means, communicating with people. I mean, I think this is a, a moment where we have to rely on good old-fashioned communication with our employees. We've got to listen to them, and we got to see if we can help them out in situations. And I do think that in that dialogue, there's probably a give and a take, right? I mean, you know, come to find out when you treat people well and, you're, and you listen to them that they want to kind of meet you halfway. And that's what I'm recommending doing. I think that's the best approach for right now. I do think that just like with all things, I don't know that that's a silver bullet. Think we have to be careful because we always have to be careful because you know anytime we're trying to deal with things on an individualized basis brands i mean aren't we kind of opening ourselves up saying well we're treating you know one person one way and we're treating somebody else the other so i think we have to keep in mind i think there's ways to deal with that i mean i think there's ways to say well this situation's different right i mean it's factually different than the other situation and maybe here's why maybe it's going to require a little bit more documentation maybe it's going to require a little bit more uh, creative thought, but I think we have to be willing to go there with our employees if we're going to be the kind of employer we want to be, if we're going to create the kind of culture that we want to create. Well, that's it, Jim. And, you know, one of the things that you mentioned, the individualized approach, I mean, that's a concern I have, right? I mean, I'm sure you do too, but you can't treat people differently. We've got to, we've got to treat similar situations similarly. That's the very essence of discrimination is to treat people differently who are in a similar situation to some other person outside the protected class. But I think the point that you made is these situations can be made different in almost every instance. So like, you know, one of the things you hear all the time, and I'm sure folks that are listening are, are thinking, you know, well, there's, there might be, you know, Bob, I want to get rid of, but Mary, I want to keep. Well, why do we want to get rid of Bob and why do we want to keep Mary? What, if there's an objective reason why and we can articulate what those are, you know, well, Bob's always late for work or Bob's got a bad attitude or, you know, Bob has been insubordinate to his supervisors. And that's why we would like to apply these rules differently to Bob than to Mary. Well, there are ways to deal with Bob that are independent of manner in which we treat people who have needs under the FFCRA or who, who have, you know, leave 
concerns based on childcare issues. That's what it's about, right? Is to try to identify what the differences are and address those differences independent of what we're trying to accomplish with leave issues and a culture that we're creating for all employees that we're trying to work with them and understand the burdens that they face. Does that sound like where you were headed? Yeah, that's right. And I mean, you know, I think that the point that you're really driving home is, you know, the reason that it's not, it's not because Bob's a male and Mary's a female, right? Or it's not because Bob's white and Mary's African-American. I mean, that has nothing to do with it. It has everything to do with the specific factual situations that Bob is presenting and that Mary are presenting. And I think as long as those are documented and, you know, you can arm somebody like me and you to go into court. I mean, you know, hopefully that won't happen, but where you can honestly convince somebody that, hey, these situations are appreciably different. You've got documentation to it, but I think you've got a good basis for going with an individualized assessment. So HR people love policies and procedures, and so do lawyers. We draft them up and the HR professionals enforce them, and everyone likes to know that there's a specific set of rules and guidelines that we can follow. And in most cases, you know, I think you would agree, that's awesome. That's the way we want it. How do policies and procedures play into this? One of the things that we haven't seen are clients calling up and asking us to help revise policies to address what's going on with the pandemic. And I think maybe we should be. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I've had the opportunity to work with a number of different clients on drafting policies. And I think, I mean, you know, you got to have or should have policies, I think, to deal with this situation. And I think you should have policies anytime there's a law that places affirmative obligations on the employer, right? And I mean, with the Families First Act, that's what we have with the leave entitlements of the Paid Sick Leave Act and the Families First Act. I think it's important that we put pen to paper on that, distribute it to the employees just to let the employees know and everybody else too, to the extent we have to at, at some point later in the future that, you know, the company was aware of the law and the company followed the law. The company informed the employees of what the law is. I think that's good. I think also Brant sort of fundamentally, I think it's important that we communicate with the employees what our new procedures may be as it pertains to coronavirus. And most companies probably have new procedures in terms of whether we're going to allow visitors in the workplace, for instance, whether we're going to take temperatures, things of that nature. I think those are important things to communicate to employees. Well, yeah. And so I think you've hit it on the head, which is that there's really not a lot of difference between policies and procedures. In a lot of ways, that's a synonymous term. It can be different. But what we're really saying is we got to have a procedure for how we're going to address these issues. We've got to have a procedure for how we analyze it. And the best way to make sure that we've created a culture where employees feel informed and comfortable with how the company's handling it is to tell them what that is. It's communication. It's taking the procedure that we're following and turning that into the policy so that employees feel like they can rely on it and that it's going to be applied consistently. What I would encourage folks listening to this podcast and, and any client that I talk to to do is to think about what are we going to do here if this problem arises? What are some problems that we anticipate and what are we going to do about them when they arise? And the answer is probably not going to be fire everyone who isn't able to come to work because of childcare issues. And if that's not the answer, then what are we going to do? How are we going to address it? I mentioned earlier our firm's you know, the email that went around this morning. And that was really a procedure is what it was. And it was a procedure that was communicated to the workforce so that they would understand. And I think that was a good solution to a problem. 
So it really comes down to communication, to letting people know these are our expectations and here's what we're going to do to enforce those expectations. And we're going to work with you to the extent possible, but it requires communication, not just from us, but from you as well. You got to keep us informed. You got to let us know what's going on. The thing we're going to get the maddest about is not knowing. When we don't know why you're not here or where you are, that's a problem. But if you're letting us know, we're, you know, we have procedures for that. We have policies for that. So I would encourage everyone to think about communication of our procedures to the workforce, to turn them into policies so that everyone knows what the expectations are. And I think, you know, we do that, we're way ahead of the game when inevitably, you know, what Jim was talking about earlier, when schools stop and start and, and, and people have these challenges that are just frankly inevitable. I think we agree that there's going to be throughout the fall a lot more problems than we hoped back in March and April there would be come fall, right? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, well, you know, hopefully we're wrong about that, right? I mean, but I I don't think there's any harm in planning for it. And I think that's what this podcast is about, is planning for it. I mean, there's a lot of things that I think it's prudent to plan in advance for as it pertains to coronavirus. But to follow up on one of the things that you said, Brandon, because I do think Whenever you're talking about a policy, I mentioned earlier, just identifying what the requirements that the employer must provide to the employee from a leave perspective in a policy. I mean, that's a good place to start. But the other sort of inevitable circumstances you're going to have to deal with is what are you going to do when, you know, you have an employee who tests positive for coronavirus? What are you going to do when you have somebody who has symptoms? What are you going to do when somebody's exposed to somebody else? And I think those kind of three situations I mean, there should be something that's contemplated in a black and white manner in your policy. And that way, you know, from that perspective anyway, HR people and lawyers can be kind of comfortable because they're going to go back to that sort of formulaic approach for those problems, which I do think is appropriate for those type of problems. I think that, you know, some problems are conducive to sort of formulaic approaches and some we kind of have to take a different approach. Yeah, that's a good point. And it sort of segues into the other thing that I wanted to talk about before we finish up. And it also correlates pretty well with the idea of procedures, with protocols, with policies that are in place, black and white, because everybody at this point really ought to have a protocol for how to manage a situation where someone tests positive or you've had a quarantine situation. Most of us have gotten to the place where we have those protocols. What's been interesting to me, the polarization of some of the safety issues that some people believe are critical and others think are frankly worthless in some instances. Some of the people listening to this may have experienced it where employees will complain that the safety procedures aren't stringent enough, that they don't do enough to protect the workforce and complain about that and go see OSHA and file OSHA complaints over the safety protocols. And at the same time that's happening, an HR manager might be dealing with the exact opposite situation where an employee is complaining about the fact that they have to get the temperature checked or that they have to wear a mask in the workplace. Sometimes, you know, they make those complaints based on medical conditions and we've got to address that and deal with it and evaluate it under maybe the ADA. And other times it might be for religious reasons. I've had a couple of clients that have called with questions about employees who have complained that their religious beliefs prevent them from participating in a a medical exam like a temperature check. And these are real challenges, right? And it's even if your company hasn't faced it, you know, as Jim mentioned earlier, the best thing is to be prepared. 
The best thing is to think about what we would do in that situation. Some, some of the decisions are easy. If somebody refuses to wear a mask just because they don't want to, well, that person can't work until they follow our rules. They follow our guidelines. Others are more complex. I can't wear it because it causes difficulty breathing and I have this medical condition. You can't just dismiss that out of hand. You got to think about that. As we mentioned earlier, engage in the interactive process. But I think, and Jim, jump in here, what's critical is to have considered the possibility that these things will happen. And I say it's more than possibility, it's inevitability. And and have a procedure in place for defending it. What are your thoughts on that? I think that's right. I mean, you know, the reality with coronavirus is it's bringing a lot of issues that we're having to deal with, whether you're HR folks or employment attorneys that we haven't dealt with before. So it's hard. It's challenging. I think that one of the best approaches that we can have, to, you said this, and I think this is really smart. I mean, you can't just dismiss something out of hand, right? I mean, a lot of times it's not as simple as just to say, sometimes it is. Sometimes it's as simple as to say, well, we have a rule. And if you're not going to follow our rule, then, you know, there's going to be a consequence for it. But if somebody articulates a legal basis for not following that rule, such as a potential disability, then it's something that we have to work our way through and to kind of, you know, connect everything together. That's where we fall back on our policies and procedures. And we go back to uniformity, too. I mean, the, the thing I think we're talking about, France, is there's always a degree of uniformity to the approach that we employ whenever we're trying to figure out these problems. If we have for instance, the ADA issue, we're going to engage in that interactive process, right? I mean, every single time. I mean, are we all going to, are we going to do it the same way every time? No, we're not because these problems are dynamic. And I think that's where we get into sort of an individualized assessment. And, and also too, when we engage in that individualized assessment, how we can articulate why we're doing it in this particular circumstance. And it has nothing to do with any sort of protective characteristic, but everything to do with the facts and circumstances. I think if we employ that type of approach to all our problems, then we're doing the best we can. But I do think that step one is sort of, you know, allowing for the possibility that these type of problems are going to manifest themselves. And just kind of thinking about the open-mindedness and preparedness that we're going to need to address these problems in the best way we can. Right. And, you know, again, to sort of flip back around to where we started, that was the concern that you and I had discussed earlier in the week is that we have become accustomed as lawyers and HR professionals to deal with things in a pretty black and white way. The rules are the rules, the law is the law, and you apply it and you move on. And this is just a new dynamic for all of us where, you know, really good workers, really important and valuable employees are going to have challenges that cause them to be out of work, that cause them to miss time, that maybe it caused them to use all of their available leave. And, you know, we've got to figure out ways to address that that's both good for the company and good for the employee so that we can maintain the culture that we've built. Because the alternative is we end up with short-term solutions that are maybe legal on their face, but that create really big long-term problems for morale, for culture, for retention, you know, the kind of things that, that can sink a company pretty fast. And some tips, some action items, you know, as Jim has, has just mentioned, Consider the possibilities. Think outside the box about the kinds of problems that you anticipate as we go into the fall. And let's start working on addressing our policies and our procedures, implementing, creating, and revising the rules that we're going to use as we evaluate these, these absences and other issues that come up, whether they're safety complaints or disputes in the workplace and, and how we're going to manage them in this new environment. 
that's where I see that we are, Jim. Any other tips or thoughts before we close it out? Yeah, I think, you know, just to, this has been fun. Uh, first of all, it's been a lot of fun. And, and just to kind of, yeah. I guess, to kind of end a little bit where I started in terms of talking about the anecdote about how that class action lawsuit started. I don't think everything we talked about in this particular episode has been about legal issues that we're facing today, but they could be. They could be legal issues as soon as tomorrow. The problems of today are oftentimes the legal issues for tomorrow. And if we want to be in the business of solving problems, or if we want to be good at it, we need to think ahead. The future may be uncertain, but it's certainly coming. We can't be ostriches or fortune tellers, but we can be prepared. And that's the culture we want. Not one based on waiting and reaction, but one rooted in preparedness. Absolutely. And, you know, as we close this out, you know, you and I have talked a lot about what I think is the foundation for these decisions, what I think is the platform that we use to make some of the necessary changes in our policies and procedures and our strategies. And the coming podcast episodes will be a deeper dive into the specific legal issues at play and how OSHA might come into play here or the National Labor Relations Act with unionization issues or you know, dealing with the Department of Labor and audits that might occur as a result of some of the issues that are raised by the pandemic. So be prepared for those. Be on the lookout for future podcast episodes in this labor and employment series that are going to dive more deeply into the legal issues that Jim and I have sort of you know, raised as a possibility and raised as a thinking point for how we review the legal issues. In addition to that, Burr has a whole library of podcasts that are available on other legal topics, such as things like e-signatures, our immigration department that's inside the labor and employment group that Jim and I work in has put together a podcast called Take Five, where it will give you the top five things you need to know each week as it relates to immigration. If immigration is a thing that impacts your workplace, it's a great podcast for quick bites of information and changes and updates in the law. And you can find all these podcasts and other information about Burr and Foreman at burr.com. That's B-U-R-R.com. We really appreciate your attention and your interest in the topic that Jim and I discussed today. And we look forward to seeing you again and talking to you again soon. Thanks, everyone.